0: This morning, our text from Hebrews chapter 11 speaks about faith. I love talking to people about faith because it's something that every Christian life must have and must increase in. You don't know what liberty it gives to a preacher to say, I'm going to talk about something that applies to every person in this room. Because it doesn't matter how many years you've walked with Jesus Christ, whether you're just at the beginning of your walk with God, or whether you've advanced very far, or whether you've yet to come into the kingdom, you need faith. And you need more of it. And God wants to speak to your life about it now. Now, at the end of Hebrews chapter 10... The writer of the Hebrews quoted an Old Testament passage, Habakkuk chapters two, chapter two, verses three and four. And especially he focused on that line in verse four, where it says the just shall live by faith. That's a very important phrase. It's quoted three times in the New Testament from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. It's quoted in Romans chapter one. It's quoted in Galatians chapter three, and it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. So remember that phrase, the just shall live by faith. But it's entirely reasonable for a person to ask, what's faith? How do I live this life of faith? Yes, it's one thing for us to say, the just shall live by faith. You should and must live by faith. But what does that even mean? And the writer of the Hebrews says, I'm glad you asked that question. So let me take chapter 11 to explain to you both what faith is and then to show you how on a very practical way, faith works out in the life of the people of God. So first, let's talk about what faith is. Verses one and two of Hebrews 11. We read now, faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. Number one, faith is substance. There is something substantial to faith. Let me see if I can explain to you what faith is the substance of and how it is connects to the things that are hoped for, as he explains there. We interact with the material world because of senses that we have. You have the sense of sight. Of course, you also have the sense of touch, the sense of smell, the sense of hearing. But wouldn't you say that the predominant way that we interact with the material world around us is by the sense of sight? It's not the only way, but it's the predominant way. I would say this, that not only is there a material world that we live in, which is obvious to every one of us. But we also live in a spiritual world. We live in a world where there are realities that are non-material. There it is, a spiritual realm. There is a work of the spirit that happens around us. Faith is the sense by which we interact with the spiritual world. It's like the sight that enables you to interact and work with The spiritual world, just as much as your physical sight, helps you to interact with and work with the material world. So faith is the substance of what? Of things hoped for. In other words, if you have it in your hand, you don't need faith for it. Faith is for things that you don't yet have, that you don't yet possess, that aren't yet evident in what we might call the material world. It's the evidence of things hoped for. Excuse me, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And notice what he says in verse 2. By it, the elders obtained a good testimony. Faith has a work that it does in our life. It makes a difference in your life whether or not you have faith or you don't have faith. And that's why we should be a people of increasing faith that our faith grows, that our faith deepens, and God wants to do that work in our life. It worked that way in the life of great men and women in the past of God's dealing. That's why he says there, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Other people have lived by faith, and so can you. Now he goes on here, verse 3, to describe, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which were, are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now notice this. He says that by faith we understand things that we weren't around to see. There's not a single person in this room, as old as you might be, who is around to see the creation of the world. Yet, Nevertheless, we know that Genesis chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning God simply said, Let there be light. In the ancient Hebrew, it's more like this light be and there was light. In other words, God said it. It happened. How do we know that? We don't know it because we were there to see it, but we know it by faith because God's word specifically describes it for us. I know what some people immediately think. They might think that's very unreasonable to believe that friends. Let me tell you about the relationship between faith and reason. I do not believe that faith contradicts reason in the slightest. Faith may go beyond reason, but it doesn't contradict it. No, actually, God does not want us to take what you might call a blind leap of faith. Where you just say, well, I hope there's something out there. I'll leap and maybe I'll find it. No, no. What God wants to do is God wants us to take steps of faith but they are informed steps of faith, informed by the reliability of God's word and the testimony that he gives us in his word. So not blind leaps of faith, but actually rational steps of faith based on God and his own reliability. So we understand this as verse three says, we understand that God created the world and that God is a great enough friends. Again, that's not against reason. It's an entirely reasonable and rational statement to say this. How about this? That the greatest um, system that our world has ever seen was designed by a great engineer. Does that take great intelligence? No, it's a very reasonable, rational statement. How about this? That the design of creation has an intelligent designer behind it. This is entirely rational. entirely reasonable. It's something for us to understand. And so oftentimes the conflict that there is in our modern world between science and between scripture or uh, spirituality, I think sometimes that conflict is unnecessary. Let me explain to you why. I think that we as Christians, we should be very happy about science. I have to say, I'm very happy to live in a scientific technological age. I benefit from it every day. So do you. We're very happy about that. Yet nevertheless, we also understand this, that God created us with the ability to investigate and to know science. Let me give you this idea from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. It says this. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. I relate that verse to scientific inquiry in this. It's as if God has planted all throughout the cosmos his wisdom, his principles, his design, his engineering expertise. He conceals it throughout all of the cosmos. And then he says to mankind, he goes, you come on out and figure it out. I've concealed it. You seek out after it. And my answer to the scientist who in and I'll just say it, who in arrogance Or in a lack of wisdom, discounts God and pushes God out of the way. I say to that scientist, you just haven't searched out enough. If you would continue on in an honest scientific inquiry, it would lead you towards God, not against him. As a matter of fact, I would say that the problem with the arrogant or with the uh, with the um, with the rejecting scientist, the one who rejects God. It isn't that they know too much. It's that they don't know enough. Keep searching, Mr. Scientist. Keep searching, and you will find that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. Now, this is what we have to know, though, friends. There is more to reality than what can be measured in a laboratory. Isn't that true? You know this from your own life. I don't think you can measure love in a laboratory. I don't think that you can measure spiritual things in a laboratory, but nevertheless, they are real. They are real. And that's what we need to understand. Coming in to now, verse four, because now starting in verse four, it's as if the writer of the Hebrews leads us into a great room. Think of a great hallway and there are statues or maybe paintings of great men and women of God on either side of that hallway. And we're going to take a guided tour down that hallway where we go down and we look at this statue of this great man of God and this painting of this great woman of God. And he's going to tell us a little bit about each one of these people and how they lived a life of faith. Ready for this first one on our tour through the Hall of Faith? Verse four describes her as Abel. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead still speaks. You know the story of Cain and Abel, don't you? It's early on in the book of Genesis. Both Cain and Abel were sons of Adam and Eve. And Cain was a man who was a farmer. He grew grain and produce and vegetables from the ground. While Abel was a shepherd, he handled livestock. They both came and made their offerings to God. And Abel brought a sacrifice from his flocks. And Cain brought an offering from his grain or his vegetables or his fruit, whatever it was. It would be very easy to think that the difference between the two sacrifices was that Cain brought an offering of vegetables and that wasn't pleasing to God while Abel brought a sacrifice of meat and that was pleasing to God. There's no point in trying to make the correlation between meat and vegetables in which we should prefer between that. Because actually the difference between their sacrifices was not the difference between meat and vegetables. The difference between their sacrifices was one was a sacrifice made of faith and the other one was not made in faith. Because Abel's sacrifice was made with faith, it pleased God. Cain's sacrifice was made without faith and it did not please God. Right off the bat, the writer of the Hebrews wants us to know that you can perform religious rituals, but if you don't perform them in faith, they're meaningless before God. But if you practice religious things, if you do, can I just say right now you're doing a religious thing, are you not? You're here at church on a Sunday morning. This is a religious practice or a custom or something that you do. If you do it with faith, God honors it and will bless it unto you. Now, another thing to examine in this is think about Abel. What reward did Abel get immediately on this earth? Nothing. He was killed. His reward was in the life to come because it says very plainly there in verse four, God testifying of his gifts and through it, he being dead still speaks. He was killed. He suffered in this life, but Abel was able to know and see to a life beyond And in it, he still speaks to humanity and to all of creation about the importance of faith. That's Abel. Let's take a look at the next one. Verse five and six speak speak to us about Enoch. Here we go. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Notice this verse 5 says, By faith Enoch. Enoch is one of the mystery men of the Old Testament. He gets a whopping three verses, maybe four in the Old Testament. That's it. That's all he gets. Just a few verses in Genesis chapter 5. But this is what one of the verses says about Enoch. It says... That Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's just plain strange. (laughs) Enoch was so pleasing to God in his life and his walk. I'm not trying to say that he was perfect, but he just lived a life that was so pleasing to God. So much in communion with God that God said, you know what, Enoch, you've started your walk here on earth. Why don't I just take you up into heaven and we can keep on walking together in heaven? It just took him right on up. I would love to be Enoch. Would not you? Would not you love to live a life so close in fellowship with God, so much in this communion of faith with him that he simply just said, come on up, David. Come on up. Why don't you come and live with me up in heaven? Now, in Genesis, it does not specifically say that Enoch had faith. Nevertheless... It says that Enoch pleased God. And now the writer of the Hebrews wants us to know in verse six that without faith, it is impossible to please God. How do we know that Enoch had faith? Because he pleased God. And if you want to please God, which, by the way, you should want to please God. This is the fulfillment of your purpose in life. It's not fundamentally to please yourself. But if you live your life to please God first, you'll find the fulfillment in life that you were created for. To please God takes faith. You cannot please God unless, notice what he says in verse 6. He says, you cannot please God unless you know that he is, that God exists, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. First, you got to believe that God exists. If you don't believe that God exists, why don't you talk to him about it? And he'll tell, he'll reveal himself to you. You say, well, what, i I, I got to know that he exists before I talk to him. Really? Why don't you just try it? Why don't you just talk to him? Why don't you just seek after him? Why don't you just come to God and say, God, I'm not absolutely convinced, but based on what other people tell me, I think you might just be real. Would you reveal yourself to me? If you diligently seek God, he will reward you. That is a promise in God's word. First, you believe that he is. Then you believe that he rewards those who seek after him. That was the testimony of Enoch's life. Now, let's go to a third person. Noah in verse seven. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Here's Noah. He exercised faith, verse 7, in that he was divinely warned of things not yet seen. What had Noah not yet seen? Rain. I know it sounds very strange to our ears and I'll admit it sounds strange, but this is what the Bible says in the book of Genesis, that before the flood came in the days of Noah, it had not rained on the earth as we know rain. And therefore, when God told Noah, it's going to rain, prepare for the flood, Noah said, it's going to do what? He didn't really understand this business of water coming down from the sky. But this is what he said. He said, God. I don't have to understand it. You don't have to prove it to me. You said it. I'll believe it and I will act upon it. Because what did Noah do? Verse 7 tells us that he built an ark. You see, that's where faith comes down to reality. When you do something in light of your faith. And not just something small. Noah didn't say, God said it's going to rain, so I'm going to buy an umbrella. No, God, you told me to build an ark And even though I've never seen rain with the eye of faith, I'm going to believe you and believe your promise and I am going to obey you. That's exactly what Noah did. He prepared an ark and it says there in verse seven that he condemned the world. How did he condemn the world? We don't really know. People love to conjecture. And isn't it true with this feature film that's going to come out in some months that there is some big film starring Russell Crowe and I don't know who else, about the life of Noah. And I don't know what to make of these movies. I suppose sometimes they're good. Look, honestly, anything that gets people thinking about the Bible, I'm in favor of. Anything that'll treat it seriously. And I hope this movie treats it seriously. But nevertheless, it's supposed to be this life about Noah. And I wonder how they're going to picture him as being someone who condemned the world. I don't think Noah condemned the world by screaming at the world. I think it's probable that Noah condemned the world by simply living a righteous life of faith. And ladies and gentlemen, that is condemnation to the world. I heard a story, and it's certainly not my story. I heard it second or third hand, so I can't even vouch for its reliability. But I'll just tell you two as a story, and perhaps it's true. It's a story about a real person, about Billy Graham. Well, anyway, the story goes like this. There was a man playing golf one day with Billy Graham. And he plays these 18 holes of golf with Billy Graham. And this particular man was not a believer. He wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. He gets off the 18th green and he's so angry. He takes his clubs and he throws them in the trunk of the car. And he's very angry. And a friend sees him in the parking lot of the golf course. And he goes up to him and he's kind of concerned. Now, the friend is a believer, but the man who just played 18 holes with Billy Graham was not. And he said, hey, what's wrong? You know, Why are you so upset? He said, I just played 18 holes of golf with Billy Graham and all he was doing the whole time was just cramming religion down my throat. Man, I hate that. Well, the friend who was a believer was kind of surprised because he didn't think that Billy Graham would be that kind of obnoxious, you know, shove it down somebody's throat. I mean, he wouldn't be surprised if he shared the gospel with him, but not in an obnoxious way. So out of surprise, he said, really? Man, that, that doesn't sound like Billy Graham to me. Could you tell me? what did Billy Graham actually say to you that crammed religion down your throat? Right then, the man who was so angry got very um, embarrassed and he looked down at the ground and he said, well, he didn't actually say anything. (laughs) Look, it was just spending 18 holes with Billy Graham that made him feel condemned. Now, friends, it's true. If you live a life of faith, it's going to make some people around you uncomfortable. But this is what God calls us to do. We can't live down to a lowest common denominator attitude in our society as large. No, no, no. The attitude is this, that God, if you call me to live a life of faith, I need to do it. Even, Even if my life preaches a message to people around me that they don't always appreciate. Going on here now, let's take a look at faith in the life of Abraham. Verse eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, did you see that phrase in verse eight? He went out, not knowing where he was going. That's faith. When every step is planned and prepared in front of you, it doesn't take so much faith, does it? But for you to go out and to say, God, you're guiding me. I know you want me to go, but I don't know all the details ahead of time. That's faith to go out, not knowing where you are going. For some of you, and I say this gently, I don't mean to condemn you, any of you, but for some of you, that's unbearable. The idea of you stepping out without having it all explained ahead of time, it's like no way. Can I just ask you to allow the Lord to challenge you on that? Maybe just take some baby steps of faith in that particular regard this year where God can lead you on something where you don't need to know the beginning from the end, where it doesn't have to be all safe, all planned, all secured ahead of time. But you, like faithful Abraham, can go out not knowing how it's going to turn out ahead of time. You can go out and walk in faith because... Even though Abraham had never seen Canaan with his eyes, even though he didn't know where he was going ahead of time, he saw with the eye of faith. And he said, God, I don't see Canaan, but I see you and I see your promise and I judge that you are reliable when it comes to your promise. Going on now, take a look here at verse 9. He says this, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for this city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Friends, this is another aspect of faith. And if I could describe it this way, the sight that faith gives us, it says here in verse nine, that by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise and Abraham lived as a foreigner in the land that God promised him. In other words, it's this God promised him the land of Canaan. He lived in the land of Canaan. But the whole point of those verses that I just read to you, verses nine and 10, is that though his feet were in Canaan, his heart was in heaven. And he realized that when he lived in Canaan, he was somewhat of a foreigner there. Do you know what it's like to be a foreigner in a particular place? I know. Uh, For seven years, our family, we lived in Germany. Well, I did a Bible college work there. And we loved it. And we felt very embraced, very accepted by all our German friends. And I got to say, we really loved living there in Germany. Yet... You're very aware, I was, I'm a foreigner. And other people were aware of it as well. Did you know that when I lived in Europe, they could figure out I was an American without me saying a word? There's just something different about the way that you dress, the way that you walk, the way that you carry yourself. You can tell, uh, you're not from around here, are you? And then, of course, as soon as I opened my mouth, Even though I might say the words somewhat correctly, they could tell from subtleties of pronunciation And this. You're not from these parts, are you? Now, listen, even though we had such a warm reception living there in Germany, nevertheless, I knew what it was like to live as a foreigner. There is a sense in which God wants every one of us to live as a foreigner right here in the community where we live. It wouldn't matter to me if you were born and raised in Santa Barbara and if you've never left the country. Nevertheless, you should have that attitude that says my feet are here on Santa Barbara. My heart belongs to heaven. By the way, I think both aspects of that equation are important. It's not just to say that you live in heaven, some airy, fairy kind of weird spiritual existence. No, your feet are on earth. You live here in Santa Barbara, but your heart Your heart belongs to heaven, as it says here. Look at verse 10. It's exciting. He says, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It's as if he said, God, I thank you for what you've given me on this earth. It's wonderful. But even the greatest things on earth doesn't compare to what I see with the eye of faith for eternity in heaven to come. Now, verses 11 and 12, we read. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child and she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and from him as good as dead. Thanks to Abraham right there. Boy, that's quite a compliment. And him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is on the seashore. Do you know the story about Abraham and Sarah and how they had a baby? Abraham and Sarah could not conceive children their entire adult life. And then they went into their elderly years. They were very old. Sarah was somewhere in her 90s. Abraham was something like 100. And God came to them and said, guess what? You're going to have a baby. What a shock that would be, wouldn't it? But, of course, they had longed for one their entire life. It was the fulfillment of God's promise. And it would have been the easiest thing in the world for Sarah and Abraham both. But the focus is here on Sarah to say, no way. I see with my eyes. I look at this body. I live in this body. I know this body is not going to conceive a child. This body couldn't conceive a child when I was young, It's certainly not going to conceive a child now that I am far past the age of bearing children. Nevertheless, Sarah, she did not look to the deadness of her own body, but she looked to what? Look at it right there. It's very exciting in verse 11 where it says, Because she judged him faithful who had promised. She looked at her own body and said, No way. Then she looked at the promise of God and she said, You're faithful. You keep your promises. And then she had to weigh it. Which do I give greater consideration to? What the condition of my own body or the promise of God? And she realized it's the promise of God that is of greater power and of greater strength. And this is why they received the blessing of a child. And through that child, millions of descendants came. We can summarize this first section of Hebrews 11, starting out verse 13, where he says this. These all died in faith. Think about that. These all Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, they all died in faith, continuing on now at verse 13, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. They embraced them and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth for those who say such things, declare plainly that they seek a homeland And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Ladies and gentlemen, every one of those people, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, They lived their lives with their feet on this earth, but looking ahead and looking beyond to a heavenly reality that had to be apprehended by faith. Do you have that faith? Or is your sight limited only to the here and now to the material? You'll only believe into that which you can taste or touch or see or measure, but you cannot look beyond all of that to the spiritual reality that can be perceived by the eye of faith. Now notice, they did this all based on the promises of God. Look at it there at verse 13. It says that they saw the promises afar off. Friends, this is very important. It's all based upon the promise of God. It's not based on wishful thinking. It's not based on my desires. It's not based on wouldn't it be nice, or I really wish I had this, or on and on. No, no, no. It's based on this, the promise of God. And if God makes a promise, I can believe it. And so can you. But here it is. They saw the promises afar off. Secondly, they were assured of the promises. Thirdly, it says they embraced the promises. Don't you love that? Sometimes I feel like I just spend some time embracing the promises of God. Yes, Lord, this is for me. Yes, God, this is my property as one of your followers. And then it says that they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. They knew that they were not only connected to this earth, but that they had a heavenly reality that they laid hold of by faith. And so the good result of it is, it says that these all died in faith and they received the reward That God had for them. Therefore, look at how it rats up here in verse 16. He says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, sometimes in the Christian world, we talk about this idea that the follower of Jesus should not be ashamed of Jesus. And that's a valid concept because the scriptures talk about that. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them on that day. So yes, we have, we understand this idea that we should not be ashamed of Jesus. And I would hope for everybody in this room, you would say, no, I'm not ashamed to be counted a follower of Jesus Christ. But this is an entirely different idea. It's not about me being ashamed of God. It's about the terrible idea that God might be ashamed of me. You don't want that. I don't want that. So how can I have it to where God is not ashamed of me? Ladies and gentlemen, faith. Faith so that you can lay hold of and with that eye of faith. You can see, you can connect to the world of the immaterial and believe God's promise. Not believe a fairy tale, not believe, make believe, but believe God's promise. There's not a single person who was here when Jesus was nailed to the cross. It happened at a historical place. It happened at a certain point in history. It happened, there's no doubt about it. There it is. Jesus was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha. Nobody in this room saw it, but we believe it because we have reliable report. And we believe that not only that it happened, but we believe the promise of God regarding it. And here's the promise of God regarding it that Jesus died there as a substitute, that he bore upon himself all my sin, all my shame all my guilt, and as I put my trust in the person and work of Jesus, God receives me as his own. That's faith. And that's what God calls you to put your faith in and then beyond every day to trust God's promise in your life. Are you ready for this? Are you ready to live this day and the next day and the next day and ongoing saying, I believe God and his promises. I didn't have to see it with my physical eyes to be real. I can take his promise and trust in that. Father, I pray that you would give greater sight to everybody in this room to their eye of faith. Lord, I think there's some people their their faith is very blurry. It's very uncertain. Maybe, Lord, for some people in this room their eye of faith is blind. Jesus, you had a particularly wonderful ministry of healing the blind. Would you help those this morning? I'm not thinking of those who are physically blind, but those who are spiritually blind. And Lord, would you help us all to have and to grow in faith? Pour out this grace upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.